0: It's almost like photography is, uh, nece- good photography is necessary but not sufficient to be successful in any of these fields. This is true, I think, in many, many fields. It's not unique to photography. But um, I do think a lot of people have this, you know, maybe they believe that by making good photographs, that will be sufficient. And I just mm-hmm. don't think that it is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's disappointing because not every photographer, not every great photographer really likes marketing their work. A lot of them don't want to do the hustle of like, you know, working with the gallerists and selling their prints and framing, going around in shows. Um, they don't like promoting themselves. And this is, you know, one of the things about life that's a little bit unfair, mm-hmm. is sometimes the world's best people don't self promote. Yeah. And I find it to be a paradox, you know, my favorite people in the world, uh, I'm promoting, because they're not promoting themselves. Mm-hmm.
1: Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Today, I interviewed Christopher Michael. Christopher is a former startup CEO and many other things, uh, but right now his passion is photography, and he's very good at it. Uh, And before we did this episode, he actually took me around San Francisco, and we took pictures of people, and it was really interesting to see his style and the way that he kind of got people to open up, and it was really beautiful to to witness. Uh, And so... It was very great to then interview him and this is the result of that of that conversation so i hope you enjoy it if you do please find us on itunes spotify stitcher or any of the other podcasting platforms and go ahead and give us a review and subscribe uh, and my i'm on twitter at Stuart allsop iii my dms are open i'd love to hear from you about this episode or any of the other other episodes i'm publishing hope you enjoy it please let me know what you think have a great day so welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Uh, my guest here is Christopher Michael, and he is a photographer. been a photographer for a while now, right? Fifteen years or 15
0: something. Fifteen years, yeah. So yeah.
1: Cool. And what does creativity mean to you?
0: Hmm. Well, that's, you you stopped me on the first question. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, creativity means uh, uh, I, at least looking at uh, the world um, and problems and opportunities in novel ways. Interesting. It's pretty broad because my I, my first reaction was to talk about creating, but creativity doesn't necessarily mean that you're creating. It could be the way you see the world. And this is something I talk about on the show a
1: lot is essentially we're, 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 we are creating our own reality right now. Like Absolutely. Yeah, you, you probably have something very good to say about this. So I, I talk about how vision, you know, we take, we look at the world and then we're looking at the world, but that's only one tenth. Our brain is basically shrinking that down by a factor of ten. Uh, and so what I see is not actually what I see, it's what my brain has created an image. And the same thing we're doing with our thoughts all the time, you know, like I, I create thoughts all the time about what's happening, but none of that's not happening. Like it's just Or like maybe a, it is. Well, yeah, <laughs> it is yeah, yeah, but it's never happening in the way that I think. I that's that I think that, that is a accurate statement. Well, yeah,
0: you're you're you know, you found uh, yourself very quickly in the world of perception. Uh-huh. You know, mm-hmm. I have um, uh, a book by, uh, I think it's Aldous Huxley, called Doors of Perception. Do you know about this book? I do, yeah. yeah. Right. Uh, I didn't realize that that's where the um, band name, the doors, comes from. Yeah. I just learned that. <laughs> so, But I mean, a lot of it is, you know, it's all about perception. And even the data set that we have, we have a very limited number of sensors. So even what we think about as the raw data, the camera raw data, is only capturing... Light in the visible spectrum, what we notice. You know, there's a lot of other information out there. Mm. And how do you use that as a photographer? Hmm. That's interesting because I uh, I don't think of it in that context. I would say, how do I use that as a human? So mm. I'm Buddhist, and I'm not religiously Buddhist. I'm Buddhist in the sense of I think of it as the proper philosophy or a useful philosophy, or maybe even technology for uh, living a happier life Mm. and you know awareness of the concepts that you discussed is a kind of critical component to being happier which is you know we can get caught up in our own head and we can get caught up in our biology and our systems uh, that are designed for a particular purpose but that purpose isn't necessarily to make us happy that purpose may be survival or reproduction Um, so it's good to understand the system a little bit uh, To realize that some of the things that we might feel that may not be positive may not really be reality. Uh, Interesting. And how
1: has that willingness to engage with perception led to more happiness in your life?
0: Well, I think that there, you know, it's interesting because I, I came to this point of view without um, growing up in that kind of culture. I had an opportunity when I sold my second company to travel a lot and I spent a lot of time in Asia. And, you know, when you grew up in a Christian, sort of Christian household, Christian America. Uh, you know, you're maybe not as aware of, of the rest of the world. And when you go out there and you start to see a lot of people living a kind of different life and you read a little bit. I remember I was in Nepal hiking the Annapurna's and I ran into an older gentleman and um, he talked about how reading Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese Buddhist, changed his life. And I'd never heard of him before and you know, I picked up this book about meditation and mindfulness um, and I started to learn. Um, And then over the years, you know, I got to know more Buddhists and I was asked to be the Dalai Lama's photographer. And I did that for four or five days, and I did it at MIT, and he was there speaking with scientists because he is kind of a scientist. And you know, he wasn't speaking in religious terms; he was speaking in, in sort of science terms. And um, you know, one of the kind of key takeaways for me was that uh, you know, focusing on helping others is a very smart approach to being happier yourself. And um, you know, that's a different way of approaching the world. And I found that to be useful, um, which is compassion and kindness towards others. You know, there's lots of good reasons to do that, but maybe one of the best reasons is, is it helps us. Mm. So I'm not saying it's selfish, exactly, but it is in my best interest to be nice to other people as well.
1: And then how do you, so I've been working with this a lot recently, and there's part of me that wants to do that. And but then there's part of me that also wants to take that and make an image out of that and say I'm doing this for this reason to 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 be seen in this light. Okay,
0: you're saying you're questioning your motivation. Yeah, and I don't
1: I don't think that I'm alone in this. I think a lot of people create an image out of what they do and the activities that they do that they can then uh, show to others to show and show to themselves as well. Um, and so I think that there's a there's a sometimes there's a conflict in a lot of our motivations.
0: Okay, but is that is that necessarily a problem? So let's say uh, maybe I could challenge you on authenticity, you know, but sometimes uh, practicing behaviors that we know to be right are a kind of an effective way to build a habit around those behaviors. And maybe what you need to see is when you make other people feel good, it makes you feel good. And maybe for a while you have to do that where it's not natural. Like um, one thing I've observed living in San Francisco and in a city is when I Go out and hike someplace every single hiker that comes by me says hello mm-hmm. every single one try it you'll just see everyone says hi no one ever says hello on the streets of yeah. san francisco when i'm riding my bike in vietnam everyone says hello or whatever they're going to say in vietnamese and we smile you know we don't do that here uh, try it try changing that paradigm it's, it's a little weird because it's outside the norm but you find you get positive responses people sometimes are surprised um, so I, you know, I, I think it's important not to get too wrapped around the axle about what your motivation is. Um, you know, if, I guess if you're living a completely inauthentic life and you really don't like people, uh, that's probably not going to be as effective. Um, you know, but I, I think, you know, I, I do think that practicing those behaviors and being aware of those behaviors are important. Um, you know, it's interesting you bring up motivation because I think about this a lot. You know, when we talk about people engaging in altruistic behavior um, photojournalists that are out there covering wars. You know, there's a lot of people, people running nonprofits. There's a lot of people doing lots of things that um, appeal to kind of a higher calling or higher good. Well, if we really pressed on those issues, are they doing it because they really believe in that higher good? That's their primary driver. Or are they doing it because they enjoy it or they get some reward out of it? And it's a very interesting question. And if you do do it because you get some reward out of it, does that diminish? the effort, you know? so what we're really getting at is how much are you actually sacrificing for others versus you know reaping the rewards of helping other people? And you know you can really get uh, caught up in a kind of doom loop cycle if you dig into that too much. Mm. Um, I do think people mostly are self-interested, not everyone. You meet people sometimes that do a lot of things for other people that they clearly couldn't enjoy. Yeah. Um, but I um, you know I appreciate both kinds of behavior. so I, I would have a more forgiving view there. Which is if you treat people with kindness and compassion, um, you know you get my respect. And
1: how does that show up in your work? Well, so how does it show up for you in your work when you're taking a photograph of somebody? Because you know a couple months ago we met, and 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 uh, you know we you took some photos of people, and you'd you'd op- you know you'd open yourself up to them and say, hey, what can I can I take a photo of you? Uh, and it's really interesting because like that thing that you're talking about can be shown in many different ways. So what, I guess the question I'm asking is what is the relationship between taking photos and that compassion and kindness?
0: Okay. Well, that's a good, that's a good question. So you, I would break it into two parts. So one of the things is when I make photographs of strangers or make photographs of anyone, you know, what is the kind of motivation behind that photograph? And, um, I would say that I am really driven, deeply driven to um, capture a moment in person's life and give them a photograph that matters to them. So is that a good thing? Yes, I think it is a good thing because I think people like to have memories. <laughs> you know, people love to have photos of themselves, mostly. Um, do I get something out of that? Yes, I get the reward of knowing that I made someone happier and I get a photograph that's cool or interesting or valuable, but it really does matter. Like I photographed your father quite a lot, right? Why do I keep taking his photograph? What is the purpose for taking his photograph? Why would I even bother doing that? Right? Well, I have two reasons. One is he's kind of a historically important person and I think it's cool and part of Silicon Valley's history to have some of these photos, but it's also cool to make him feel good feels good to me. Mm. So, um, you know, maybe at the end of the day, a lot of this, I'm looking for areas that feel good to me that are also good for other people. How does that help me as a photographer? One is it's a motivation because if you uh, feel good about doing something, you know, it makes you sometimes want to do more of it, right? When people say, I've never felt better about myself than when I looked at your photo. Or many people i photographed are no longer alive and their families say... these photos were so meaningful to me thank god for these photos you know maybe they're used in their service um you know you sort of feel like that was an important thing so it drives me it motivates me the but the which is important in our lives but the other thing is um oh i when i approach strangers i have to build trust very quickly with people so i do think Unless you're a really smooth politician or great salesperson, people can pick up on authenticity. People can pick up on, are you a threat? Do you seem like somebody that will help me? Um, Can I trust you to do something kind of intimate with me, like make my photograph? And Mm. I would say over the last 15 or 20 years of making photographs, I think I'm reasonably good at building a rapport with people very quickly so that they do trust me. And when people do trust you, you can get a lot of really good photographs of them. So, um, you know, your your dad poses and sits and climbs around and does things because he, he, you know, he he knows that this is a good thing, right? Um, There are some photographers that that don't have that same sort of uh, engagement. Maybe they're really famous and people want to have their photo taken by them. Um, But really good portrait photographers are going to put people at ease and they're going to connect with them on a kind of authentic level.
1: Did you start out with that? Or was that the skill that was difficult for you to build?
0: Hmm. Um, uh, You know, I think I sort of started out with it. I mean, it's still, although I've made millions, I probably made two million photographs, maybe more than two million photographs. I've uh, made portraits of 100,000 strangers. I'm making these numbers up, I don't know. So many, it'd be hard to, to count. And, you know, Bill Cunningham in New York City, maybe he made more. I don't know. But I do it all the time. And I still find it yes. difficult. Uh-huh. I, uh, I find it more difficult in America because I think we're, we're, more, we're more vulnerable in our own culture. Because people can say, "Well, you're a weirdo," or "Why are you making my photograph?" Or some girl can say, "Well, you're hitting on me. What is this about?" Then, you, then it would be in in like Vietnam, where you don't speak the language. It's a little. You there's look no. Very different. Yeah, you look different. There's no like personal threat in the same kind of way. So uh, in America, it's it it's challenging. I was just in Paris shooting with Peter Turnley. Paris, it's also challenging Western culture, and you know. Um, When I see somebody doing something interesting, I have to like force myself a little bit to go up to them and say, hi, Mm. you know, I'm a photographer and I was wondering if I could make your portrait or take the risk and take the photo and then go talk to them. It's rare that I won't talk to someone, though. I almost will always engage with them. Before you take the photo. Mm, Yeah, I might take one photo and then engage with them. But oftentimes I go up to them first and then, you know, give them my business card and say, I would like to give you the photograph. So there's a kind of process. But um, it requires stealing myself up for that interaction because it's not part of our culture. So I think that if it requires me to do that, and I've done it Mm. 100,000 times or, I don't know, thousands and thousands of times, that, you know, it's a hard thing for all of us to do. And I teach it in my class how to do it. But, you know, once you start doing it, more of it, it's... um, it's really rewarding because people like it and people I've made friends with people all over the world. I've given them photographs and I'm in touch with them and they friend me on Facebook and like their moms friend me because they like their (laughs) photographs. So, you know, it can be really positive. And as I said, I just came back from Paris and I was shooting refugees on uh, in the Paris subway system, uh, people on the streets. I, I photographed uh, two Orthodox Jews. You know, they're wearing the whole like get up, you know, and I went up to them. I said, man, can I take your photograph or make your photograph? And they're like, why? And I said, because you guys look cool. And they're like, okay, sounds good. And, you know, it was really a great experience. we were really, we, all of us had fun, you know, doing that together. So there's a lot of reward, but, you know, maybe like a lot of things, risk, there's risk and reward. But I do think what's in our heart and our motivation and our respect for other people and our kindness towards other people does make a big difference, particularly as a portrait photographer. Mm. You know? People can pick up in the photograph if you're nervous. Yeah. They can see it.
1: They can pick up if the photographer is nervous.
0: No, they can pick it up if this if the subject is nervous. Oh, they can see it in people's yeah, yeah, faces. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're very tuned in to like people's expression.
1: That's really interesting. And there's a couple of questions I want to ask from that. Well, the first one is uh, have you been to a culture where they do not like to be photographed yes and what do they say
0: well i guess what i would say is there are um well one of the well maybe I'll, i'll step back and say i travel all over the world i've been to many 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 countries and one of the first things that i figure out is how open people are to having their photos taken i can tell right away i mean you know When you have the camera and people are like giving you the no sign before you even start taking their photo, you have a pretty good sense they're not into photographs. Uh Okay. So, um, and you know, a lot of this has to do with like what's the relationship of trust to other people? Could be what's the relationship of trusting white people in, I was shooting in the Democratic Republic of Congo, which is not very democratic, as you Mm -hmm. know. Uh, Do they like having some guy taking their photo? You know, how do they feel about it? These are colonial cultures. Uh, Sudan, it was city by city. So some places people were really into it. But then I went to some cities that really have a very negative view about photography. So I was able to make some photographs. It was very difficult. So in in cultures where they really don't like being photographed, you know, you can't really be taking shots about talking to people. You really have to get them to agree, Mm -hmm. you know, which I try to do in general. But, like, the risk is a lot higher. Uh You know, they feel... That it's, you know, I don't know if they feel you're taking their soul. It might be a very simplistic colonial view, but they do feel like you are taking something from them. So, you know, and it's interesting because I have the opposite view, which is I'm trying to give something to someone. Mostly I'm, I'm happiest when they take my business card and they email me and say, I'd like a copy of my photograph.
1: I love this theme. And particularly it's like this give, give or win, win nature of the games that we play and the things that we do it's this win-win nature of, of the things that we do and, and mm. what you're talking about is like they're winning because they get a photo you're winning because you're essentially giving them the photo but you're also getting a photo to and then this this process of editing which I and we're,
0: um, we're hopefully having fun uh, so having uh, an experience where you're lear- talking to someone and you're learning mm. i was you know in the uh i was walking in the, in the center of paris and there was this little alley and there was a woman there with all these books and she was like in her 60s or and she said, and I said, "Do you mind if I made your photo?" She said, "No." And then she told me all about the street, and like, apparently the street is like 400 years old, and like, she was explaining like the street features and the architecture, and like, so there's all of these possibilities with other humans, but we have to break through. And this is why I love being a photographer because my camera is my golden ticket to relationships with people, to go places, to meet people, excuse to do any, you know. Uh, I could go photograph anyone, right? If I want to go have a, do a photo shoot with with President Obama, right? Just as a normal person, you might not want to do it, but maybe as a photographer, if he likes your photos, he -hmm. might say, that's great. I wouldn't have been able to hang out with the Dalai Lama as a normal person, probably, possible, but I was able to do that, right? I've been able to do lots and lots of things that way. So I do think it's a win-win-win. Um, often, though, that it's, it's complicated by people's self-image or yeah. by trust. Yeah. You know, a lot of people I photograph say that they don't look good in photographs and they feel badly about how they look, and So that's its own set of conversations, usually.
1: You're talking to something I love, which is the magic of social interactions. And it's something that I, I missed out on for a large part of my life because I was so introverted and so uh, just kind of like stuck in myself and having a lot of shyness, essentially, so I couldn't reach out to people. Um, and, but then I started to travel and I started to meet people who were extroverted and who, who would get me in all these really interesting but difficult situations like uh, in the West Bank and in, uh, yeah, like ended up in a refugee camp in, in Nablus, Palestine and, and, you know, like uh, really kind of a crazy situation, particularly because Hamas and Fatah started fighting or it was around 2006, 2007 and they started fighting when I was there. and. Uh, but then this, this there's something that happens when you get into social interactions, which leads you down a path that you would never have gone down your own Absolutely. Yeah.
0: So what's your excuse to be in those situations? So one excuse is it could be your job, you could have a crazy friend, or you could be a photographer. And, you know, one thing about photographers is, and I've gotten to know a lot of photographers over the years, is they share some unusual personality um, points of commonality. One of them is they're oftentimes... Uh, lived lives outside of Mm. not normal society but they weren't like a normal part of regular groups so a lot of photographers believe or a lot of photographers feel a little like outsiders I've seen it over and over again in fact Mm. Jim Estern from the New York Times said to me a very famous photographer and he ran the lens blog one of the first times I met him he said oh let me guess you were kind of an outsider kind of growing up and it's true I moved eight times as a kid so I was always in a new school my father's Greek and British and my mother's American. And so when you always feel like the outsider, you can be part of a group, but you never feel 100% connected. A lot of those people become photographers because in a way it gives them a tool for social interaction, you know? Mm-hmm. So maybe you should think about taking more photographs because <laughs> it can be an excuse to push you in these worlds that you may not normally be in. You know, it's kind of like a you can hide behind the camera. hmm
1: well, and that's really interesting because you're not only an outsider, you, you feel like you're an outsider and then you pick up a hobby that is also by definition an outsider because you're outside the film, you're outside the thing, looking in
0: on the person, in the, on the subject, basically. And, you know, there's a variety of kinds of photographers. So some kinds of photographers are really outside, meaning they're like uh, Chris Hondros, who died in, I think, Syria on the same day Tim Hetherington died. War photographer, you know, mm-hmm. he is uh, he is mm-hmm. talking to some people, so he's definitely doing that. But he's also like photographing, making photographs of things that are happening happening around him, like war, you know. So he's by the very nature outside of the system, you know. Uh, then there's portraiture, and so in portraiture, you're really inside the system. You're actually getting clo- really, really close to people. So it is this interesting dichotomy of uh, you're the you're outside of the group. You're the wedding photographer, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then you're with the bride in her, (laughs) um, you know, the hotel room before the wedding with her alone making photographs. So you can be in, you know, you can be Mm -hmm. super tight and super out. It's almost like um, I think the lens metaphor might be right. You know, you can be, it can be a zoom, right, or very Mm -hmm. wide angle, Mm -hmm. right? And you have to, you know, uh, different photographers do different things. I do both of those things, although I prefer to be close. Uh, And
1: so... You have a lot of experience in this and you've met a lot of people who are like world class at this uh, and there's and photography is an incredibly competitive thing as well to, to make money doing photographs is incredibly competitive. So what separates uh, a world class photographer from uh, someone who, um, you know,
0: and I don't mean this in a normative sense, but just ended up doing uh, uh, wedding photos. Uh, well, okay, well, you know what What I've learned over the years since I didn't start off being a professional photographer, I started off because I love photography, right? And it became a hmm. uh, kind of obsession for me. So um, um, it's taken me a long time to figure this out and I'll try to explain it in a kind of simple way. But first of all, photography means many, it can mean many things. So yes, there's like photographers and these are people with cameras that make photographs. So generally, I guess that's the, that's sort of the broad category. Um, there are people that are like photojournalists, right? Mm-hmm. So photojournalism is a very competitive world, you know? So if you think about these war photographers, imagine you're in Syria and there's like nine Western journalists there and they're all mm-hmm. gunning for the story. Mm-hmm. And even to be in that spot, you're one of the best in the world. So it's almost like you're a professional golfer or a professional something and you're, it's not a team sport. Some people do think of it as a team sport, but many times historically these photographers have fought for these images. Right. And they're, you know, as freelancers, they're not paid well and they're really working super hard and they're adrenaline junkies and they're out there, you know, pushing really hard. And um, what I would say, well, you know, and then you've got wedding photographers and, you know, wedding photographers, there's lots of wedding photographers. Some of them get paid a lot of money and some of them don't. There are fine art photographers. Mm -hmm. Some of them get paid a lot of money and some of them don't. Mm -hmm. Right. And but the top, the pinnacle of those uh, worlds is there's only a very small number of people. And then there's a huge cat, you know, and then there's work people that can earn enough to work. And then there's everyone else, which is 98% of all photographers, mm-hmm. right? So you're right. It can be very competitive. What What's the big separation? Well, I can tell you what I don't think it is. And this is the non-obvious part. I don't think it's just the quality of the photographs. So I think many, many amateurs are making incredible photographs. Take a look at Flickr. Take a look at Instagram, mm-hmm. you know, Um You know, some of these people who don't even have big followings are making incredible photographs. Mm. And I used to think by making incredible photographs, that would be sufficient to be successful in photography. Turns out it doesn't appear to be the case. (laughs) And um, the primary driver, I think, of success in any one of these things is uh, hustle. So if you look at people that have done very well, it's people that are really hustling. They're always there when the news breaks. They're in Syria. They're in Iran. They're in, you know, uh, the Turnley brothers, they're on airplanes all the time. They often arrived in places before the stuff even Mm happened, right? So those people are working super, super hard. Story matters, right? So people that want to be in the front page of the New York Times or the National Geographic, unless you're a staff photographer, which is there aren't so many of those. Mm -hmm. These are people that have said, I have a story idea that matters that I'm uniquely capable of selling. So they have to put that together. They have to pitch it. They have to get it to editors and editors have to agree to that assignment. So if you're a good storyteller, um, you're good at like pitching, you know, you have a chance of being able to do that kind of work. Art's a little different too. Art is kind of uh, doing something unique. It might be very big prints. It might be something where you're um, combining, you know, um, photography with other medium. You then have to kind of work with gallerists and get picked up. So there's, it's almost like photography is, uh, good photography is necessary but not sufficient to be successful in any of these fields. This is true, I think, in many, many fields. It's not unique to photography, but um, I do think a lot of people have this, you know, maybe they believe that by making good photographs that will be sufficient, and I just don't Mm -hmm. think that it is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's disappointing because not every, photographer not every great photographer really likes marketing their work a lot of them don't want to do the hustle of like you know working with the gallerists and selling their prints and framing going around in shows Um, they don't like promoting themselves and this is you know one of the things about life that's a little bit unfair is sometimes the world's best people don't self promote and I find it to be a paradox you know my favorite people in the world uh, I'm promoting because they're not promoting themselves Mm. You know. but self promotion does work for a lot of people. I uh, you know I like uh, people looking at my photographs. I don't love um, you know the business of photography like selling. I'd rather give you a print. <laughs> you know, although I've sold a number of prints. Um, but you do like the business of teaching, though, or not maybe not as the business of teaching, but you like teaching. Well, it's that's a great point. So in the last three years, there's been a few changes in my life as a photographer, and one of them is I'm teaching more, and um, I don't. You know, I get paid to do it, but I don't I mean I think I, I spent more money uh, on the party for my students than I did <laughs> that I got paid. So why would I do it? Well, it feels good to me to help people um, realize the joy that I, I have of photography. And you know I, maybe I think about when I think about meaning in my life, helping others um, feels good and it feels meaningful. And so that's been a area of focus of mine and you know uh, next year, I'm teaching, well, I'm leading a trip to Svalbard, I'm teaching two to three times. And this is hard work for me. You know, a, a class is five five or six days and I'm working 20 hours a day and I'm giving the students everything I've got because mm-hmm. I want them to be successful. And I really feel like I can help people. So mm-hmm. that's the wonderful thing about photography is that I feel like most people have the opportunity to be pretty good photographers. Mm-hmm. And I feel confident in my ability to help them do that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, piano is hard. Painting is hard. Mm. Photography is hard to be really good at photography is incredible next impossible. Mm. But to be a good photographer, boy, I could teach anyone in a day to be pretty good. It is not like guitar where would take you 5 months to it. Yes. yeah. To yeah, a- I think it's easy to learn how to be pretty good. Mm. Interesting. You know, a lot of people don't believe that by the way. So I'm in the contrarian view that I can teach anyone to be a good photographer. A lot of mm. people say to me, I don't have a good eye. Uh, It's not my thing. Oh, it's my spouse's thing. My kids do it. Mm. Um, I don't know. I could teach anyone. You know, there are more or less difficult personality types to teach, Mm. you know. Um, But the most important thing for people really is just to kind of slow down and in their minds visualize the photograph they want to create and then go about to solving that puzzle.
1: You know,
0: Which is like anything
1: in life, right? I mean, it's kind of like whatever you want to do. Some people just end up in these amazing situations, but for a lot of people, you have to kind of put some imagination into it and see it in your head before you actually do it.
0: Absolutely, right? So a lot of people are taking iPhone pictures, and my guess is 99.99% of those iPhone pictures are terrible. Mm. And if they put in an extra 30 seconds into their photograph, they could be 100 times better, Mm. right? Mm. Take your time. You don't need 50 photographs. You need one good photograph. Mm -hmm. Right? If I go on a trip and I get one incredible photograph, I have one. Mm. I don't need 150 photographs. I mean, sometimes you take 150 photographs because you don't know well, mm. which one will be the one. Yeah. But I am trying every time I take my camera to make the very best picture I can make. And so sometimes I have a lot of time to do that. So in my class that your father took... Uh, We have time to make the photographs because we work with models and we have sets and we have environments and we have, we control the, I mean, somewhat control the time of day. And so we have all of the elements that are inside of our ability. So if you're not making a good photograph there, that's your problem. And that's okay. I don't mind you making a bad photograph. We can start from there. What's the matter with the photograph? Is it because you didn't visualize what the final image would look like? Mm. Uh, Is it that you are rushing? Is it that the model wasn't working for you, you didn't know what to do, you know, there's many ways to solve the problem, but it's a solvable problem. Mm.
1: So I wanted to have a conversation with you because you're at the intersection of both the technology world, well, the business world and the photography world, so I want to have that conversation. I think that'd be really interesting, but I want to actually, just from my own personal curiosity, understand the uh, Svalbard trip. You're taking other people to Svalbard. Yes. And Svalbard is this island to the north of Norway, correct? Yes. Is it No.
0: So up at about 80 degrees north, which just to to put a fine point on it, that's 10 degrees from the pole. Mm -hmm. We're incredibly high latitude. You know, if you go to Antarctica to visit, you'll go to 65 degrees south, right? So this that's, you're 35 degrees away from the south pole when you're in Antarctica on one of these boat cruises. Each degree is 60 nautical miles, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're 2,000 miles or something. You're far away from the pole. And Svalbard, you're only 10 degrees away. Wow. Right? That's 600 miles away from the pole. So you're like as close to the North Pole as you're going to get very easily. And you can get there very, very easily through SAS Airlines. Uh, you just okay. go, you fly to uh, Tromso, and then you fly up to Svalbard. So you're in a far, far away place. Just to the east of that is a place called Franz Josef Land, which is Russian. Hmm. And that's very hard to get to. I've been there on a nuclear icebreaker. It's hard <laughs> to get there. But Svalbard, same latitude, uh, you can get to. So I'm leading a trip there. That for is, a company called Natural World Safaris.
1: Okay, so this is this is for a company? Yeah.
0: For the employees
1: of that company? No, or? no,
0: no. Uh-huh. It's a travel company. Okay. And they do like adventure uh-huh. travel. And they contacted me and said, would you like to lead a photo trip? And I said, oh, that sounds pretty fun. I love Svalbard. So this to me is like, hey, I love teaching people. I love adventure photography. What well, uh-huh. can we bring them together? Uh-huh. And, you know, and I also like invited people that I thought would be really amazing.
1: That is so cool. Um And you've done a lot of this. You've spent time in Svalbard. You've spent time up in almost space, right? You went on some, yeah. And uh, you've been to Antarctica. And I've I've only been. I think the highest north I ever got was Scotland and Finland. I feel maybe I'm very sensitive, but whenever I get to these places that are far outside this zone under which we grew up, which we evolved in. Um, I find there are like, subtle things that are really interesting that start happening, particularly the light situation. The light during the summer gets Have you spent a lot of time during the summer or during the winter? Have you been to these places during the winter?
0: No. So, uh, Antarctica, you really can't go in uh, during the winter. It's mm-hmm. just not possible to do that, hmm. uh, unless you're a scientist and you're overwintering at one of the stations. So uh, that's, you know, uh, you know, Austral summer. We're basically talking about um, you know, November, December, January, February. That's the time you visit. Uh, And it's light. Well, when I was at the South Pole recently, uh, it's like 24 hours a day, Mm. right? So um, when I've been in Svalbard, we've had darkness. I was up in uh, Greenland. We had a little bit of darkness, but mostly there's a lot of light.
1: And what does that do to your psyche or do you notice a change? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, when (laughs)
0: you're, you know, I was in a tent for three weeks, you know, in the interior of Antarctica. And, you know, I'm up at two o'clock in the morning doing stuff, you know. I mean, you just don't. Do you get tired? Yeah. You
1: get tired, but you just don't sleep.
0: Uh you sleep but you know you've got an eye mask and it's like yeah. it's just i'm not getting deep sleep yeah. it's this it's like you're trying to sleep in the middle of the day all the time and you're and it's a weeks. it's difficult and you were there for three weeks yeah wow yeah in the tent so it's south pole um <laughs> uh or um this kind of base run by antarctic logistics and expeditions called union glacier and i was working you know as a photographer so i was out there photographing very famous explorers or I was on little airplanes flying around or mm-hmm. going to the South Pole or whatever it might be. So, you know, you notice that. And then you get a lot of unusual light effects like um, there's, you know, uh, uh, sun dogs and halos. Yeah. And, you know, and if you go to sure. my website, you can see some pretty remarkable pictures. These aren't like lens effects. Uh. These are what it looks like. I mean, it's otherworldly. Where can people find your website? Uh, Com or at Chris underscore Michael, M-I-C-H-E-L on Instagram.
1: And then, so the same thing that happens when you go up north and go up south and have this kind of change in light situation. I've also found that when I go into the jungle, also something similar happens. And you just spent time in Con- the Democratic Republic of Congo?
0: Uh, like a couple years ago. But I've, I photographed, I was in Borneo. Yeah. I photographed a lot in the jungles. And what does it feel like when you enter those those areas with the kind of more it's hot. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it's usually hot. It's usually hot. I don't, you know, I mean... Uh, I mean, if you're saying that a lot of places have a lot of unusual like characteristics, I would say, yeah, that's definitely true. Uh-huh. I mean, yeah, I'm thinking about gear. You know, when I'm down there, it's super hot. Stuff is getting, you know, there's bugs everywhere. Stuff's getting, like, wet. But, you know, when I'm in Antarctica, I have problems, too, because you're in incredibly dry air mm-hmm. and 30 below zero at the South Pole. And then you go inside the tent, and it's moist air because we're breathing, you know, we're exhaling all this liquid and it's warm, and basically your camera starts to sweat. Hmm. So imagine now you have a kind of sweaty camera from all this condensation, and you go outside and it immediately freezes. So yeah, you have like yeah, a yeah. block of ice around your camera. <laughs> you know, it's a problem. Yeah. What did you do? What? I brought it back in, I brought it. <laughs> well, you, what you want to do is keep your ca- I mean, since you're gonna be shooting yeah. outside, your camera should probably be outside. Oh, interesting. But I mean, that's, you know, that's cold enough that like the manufacturers have not tested this gear at 30 below zero. Mm, interesting. Uh, so let's go. Let's go into technology. So now we've got you know these
1: phones. The, the iPhone came out recently. And yeah, it's like I have the new the, iPhone. You have the new iPhone, and then how does it compare towards what you're doing with your uh, your other type of camera?
0: Uh, it's a good question. Um, I don't have. I mean, I have a rational and irrational point of view on mm-hmm. these cameras. Mm-hmm. So the um, rational point of view: I have the newest iPhone 11 Pro. Uh, the night photography is really good. It's moving in the direction that it should move. For a bunch of photos, it's making really good pictures. You know, I was uh, riding out to Ocean Beach yesterday, and I got some great beach photos. I mean, photos that seem as good as my camera. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will say, as you zoom into these photos, when you're looking in Photoshop, you can see the pixel pixelation. It's different. Um, but, you know, things like group photos, I mean, uh, in many cases, iPhones do better because they're shooting a kind of an aperture where everything's in focus. And as the computers are now involved with computational photography, mm-hmm. it knows how to make good photographs of people. Mm-hmm. You know, People look good. They look good on small screens. You know, How does it look blown up? Probably not as good. Um, for a serious photographer, I mean, this is my irrational point of view. I don't think people take iPhone photography that seriously. Mm-hmm. It'd be difficult to sell a print, an iPhone print. I think people wouldn't like it. Mm-hmm. People like when I'm shooting film. Because mm-hmm. it feels more like art, yeah. you know. When you're buying art, you're buying. It's kind of an irrational thing, anyway. So people are buying a story, you okay. know. So when you're using an old Leica or using kind of film, um, it's part of the process. If you print in the darkroom, you know, it's part of the process. People feel like they're buying an artistic hmm. thing. If you took a picture with your iPhone, I don't think people feel that in the same way. But that's you know that's our own psychology. Um, but irrationality is a huge part of the art market. So well, and that, yeah, that's that brings up an interesting
1: question. What is the relationship between technology and art? And particularly as we move into this world where technology might actually create art.
0: Boy, great question. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of you know, what I've what I found is it's sort of like um, it's, you know, if you think about some stocks trade on with a high multiple, a mm-hmm. high PE, and that's really a promise. You saw the WeWork valuation it was like this crazy valuation. And then all of a sudden the evaluation was in half. And then it was like a third of that. Mm. Why? Because the business was really valued on promise, right? And a lot of art is really valued not on the raw materials. It's valued on the promise that this is rare or unique, right? So um, people really had questions in the early days of photography whether any photography would be valuable, Mm. right? Because it could be reproduced. Mm. There isn't just one print. There can be many prints. That's why they start to do additions, right? They're like one of eight or two of eight, whatever it might be. Mm. Um, is it signed by the author? What's the providence to that person? Print, the, print it. So this is all psychology, right? So I think as computers, you know, if computers are in the business of creating art, uh, unless, the, unless there could be some scarcity to that art, I think it's unlikely that it will be quite valuable. Um, But, you know, it's just about story. I mean, people are creating tokens uh, um, and there's no, there's like theoretical scarcity because they created their own sort of token network, right? Yeah. So people buy into that. So humans are irrational. I think it's really getting to what's the story around the art?
1: Well, and and not only are we irrational, but maybe the very nature of the reason why we took over the world is because we are irrational and we can share these stories, for example, money that isn't quite rational if... You look at it like it's just a piece of paper, right? The piece of paper doesn't mean anything. We just give it
0: value. Yeah, it's an agreed-upon worldview, Yeah, you know. So uh, what does that mean? Well, I I can tell you what it means for me. What it means for me is I'm not bothered by iPhone photography. I'm not bothered by the world, you know, the photography world falling apart. And, you know, it's Mm. sad because people have had these jobs, and I think it's difficult to support Photojournalists, for example, and that's important because they're telling important stories. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's like journalism is important to the world. I think so. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess I'm not. I don't feel a threat from the from lots of people taking photographs. Mm-hmm. What I see is, in fact, as we start using more and more iPhones and photos become, you know, more prolific, and we see all of the stuff on on Instagram. My work is unique. It's difficult. It's difficult to reproduce. Uh, I'm using really good equipment. I'm using very good photo techniques, and I think in a sense it makes the different. It further differentiates the work that I'm doing mm. from everyone else doing something else. Mm. You know, um, so I, I guess I'm I'm okay with it. But these things are always evolving and always changing. Uh, it's tricky for camera manufacturers because a lot of people don't need a regular camera. Although I will say for anyone listening, mm. uh, oh, you owe it to yourself to buy a camera. Mm. Because, you know, memories are the currency of our lives and anything that's going to help you make better memories. And, you know, there's a lot of things that a camera does beyond just create good images. One thing it does is the process by u- for using a camera and the process of post-processing and the process of printing or storing these unique images is different than an iCloud one in a, you know, one million photographs you're taking on your phone. Are you really taking the time to make that photograph as good as possible? Probably not. Mm. It's probably just sitting in your camera roll. Mm. Right. And I think this will be a problem in the future because people will have so many photographs, they won't know what to make of them all. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Google, uh, Amazon will do photo recognition, they will help you categorize it. But, you know, having uh, a thousand pictures of your girlfriend is different than having the one incredible photograph. Mm.
1: This goes back to the scarcity thing. One thing I wanted to mention that came to mind once you mentioned that was that, you know, the Empire State Building, there's millions of pictures of the Empire State Building. The same thing of Yosemite and the same, like, you can't get a different angle because it's already been having all these different angles. And then maybe scarcity w- scarcity within this, within this photo- photography, you take a lot of pictures of people. And I guess that's pretty scarce because everybody looks very different.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. You know, it's interesting because I've shot many landscapes, but I'm not a landscape photographer, right? Um, one of the reasons I'm not really a landscape photographer is to do to really do something super unique is very difficult. Mm. Yeah, I mean, a lot of my landscapes have Antarctica or, or the Arctic or up in space or at the edge of space. These things are unique because the places are hard to get to. Mm. Um, but I prefer unique imagery, and unique imagery is stuff that's difficult to reproduce or even evaluate. And so when I, make a, when I make a portrait of someone, that moment in time is very valuable, and it can never be recreated. And I think the most valuable photographs can never be created again. right? Um, that's, in one sense, my favorite kinds of photographs are environmental portraits. It's um, you know, a polar explorer uh, or a scientist in their environment. Hmm. you know what I mean yeah. um, I've uh, <clears throat> I think of humans in extreme locations that's in extreme environments that's my area of focus and last year I photographed inside a Pelican Bay maximum security prison and hmm. I in fact went deeper and into the um, special housing unit which is like um, where they keep the kind of the, the people that have, are really a threat to themselves or other people is a solitary confinement These are unique photographs. These are people in hostile environments. And they were very powerful photographs. Mm -hmm. So people plus environment. Mm
1: -hmm. Wow. And that that
0: particular, that emotion of that thing, did that come through in the pictures? I think so. Yeah. I think so. And it was a great experience for me because I had no idea what to expect. And what it turned out to be was not what I imagined. Mm -hmm. So I, Mm -hmm. I mean... I don't know that many people with facial tattoos and there were many 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 people I met that had lots of facial tattoos and so I saw people with swastikas I saw people with all sorts of stuff going on you know that would normally kind of make you a little bit nervous plus you're in a maximum security penitentiary and I had more guys crying and hugging me and like being really sweet just really thoughtful people that wanted to do more with their lives so uh, I know a lot of super smart people you know um, I had a lot more appreciation for who might be in a gang or why they might be in a gang. I was in the military. So, you know, I could see that for them, it's kind of a military experience. Mm -hmm. And um, this is not um, justifying anything that they did, but I had a lot more empathy for these people than I would have imagined. And, uh, you know, you really want them to succeed. And, you know, I have a view today that we treat felons um, very, very poorly, and we should be treating them like humans. And really our objective should be to help them be successful in their lives and maybe not even give them that label for their entire life, you know?
1: There's a great organization doing that called uh, DeFi. Oh, D- yeah. I D- went there R- with them. Oh, I shot for that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, DeFi Ventures. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's really cool. Um, and then one last point I wanted to mention that's brought up was a weird thing that's happening with Instagram and photographs is that I've been doing a lot of fly fishing with my dad. As you might know, he does a lot of fly fishing. And so we've been reconnecting on the fly fishing thing. And we went to one place in particular that was, up until about three years ago, totally off the map. Mm. Uh, and then people started taking pictures on oh, yeah. Instagram of their fish and now so fly fishing has completely blown out like you can't find there is no place anymore that is undiscovered basically you mean in fly fishing or in life in fly fishing i wonder if uh, you might have insight into whether the rest of
0: it's re- it's uh, you know there's a term that needs to be created uh, which is when your secret place shows up on instagram yeah and you realize it's not so secret there are a lot of places that um well i you know there's there's a variety of ways to look at this so one element of this is how unique are your photos. So I remember the first time I went to Myanmar, maybe it was like several or eight years ago, I went to a place called Inlay Lake and there's all these people that are fishing with these kind of very unusual baskets and they're like balanced on their boats and like I took all these photographs and when I published them, people like couldn't believe it, it was amazing. And now I've seen that same photograph a million times. Mm. Everyone that goes to Myanmar gets exactly the same photo. Yeah. And in fact, good. now the fishermen aren't fishing, they're there making money posing with, with, with photographs. Yeah. So this is kind of a shame and it makes me feel less good about my photographs because I feel like they've just been overshot. And as a viewer, well, it depends on how many you've seen, but you might have seen these photographs now because they're so common, right? So that has kind of diminished, you know, the value of some of these places. Um, and uh, you're right, it also creates kind of like these Instagram destinations, which kind of wreck things. Um, so I guess that's kind of a negative, although, you know, maybe for some of these places they're getting more tourism, which is good. And that can be helpful in some respects. It's difficult to say, um, but it is harder to find unique locations because a lot of people are around photographing and and some of that stuff gets attention on the internet. Mm. Um, again, I go back to maybe the cool photographs are of people doing interesting things. Mm. You know, I'm working on a, a project called new heroes really to tell the story of scientists, you know, and nobody's making photographs of scientists. Nobody's making photographs of teachers. Nobody's making photographs of uh, the, you know, um, San Francisco Police Department. Mm. You know, mm. there's a lot of people doing a lot of good things in the world. You're barista, right? Uh, I'm tired of this pop culture uh, celebrities. Nice. You know, I want some regular people. Tell me a little bit about their story. So maybe... We need to start thinking a little differently, which is it's not just a photograph. Maybe it's a photograph and a story and a real human connection. Mm-hmm. And coupling those things together maybe is the next evolution of storytelling, mm-hmm.
1: right? Well, and I think you're onto something. And I want to bring in a point that you might you might not be aware of, but uh, I've become very aware of in the last four to five years. Uh, and it's interesting because you you say you're a Buddhist and you've you've and so yoga. This weird thing happened with yoga in the 1800s. Uh, you have colonization that colonized India from the British. The British brought a calisthenic practice to them and then started teaching the elite there how to do this calisthenic practice. Uh, Along with that a weird form of uh, religion called Theosophy uh, made its way from the United States to uh, to India and then helped them to rediscover the Bhagavad Gita. The Bhagavad Gita had been somewhat lost and then created what we now know as yoga. Hmm. Uh, And that also came about with the time with the invention of the camera. Uh, So, and so this calisthenic practice, which they'd been taking photos of in in Scandinavia and and England also made it and they started doing these poses and then the camera started to create a dynamic where people started performing the pose. Uh, Instead of doing the pose for a spiritual practice, they started to perform the pose in a performance, uh, which is actually not that far away from what we do with Instagram today. What Instagram has done to the yoga is basically is turned it in back or recreate or Made that cycle more obvious, of of, like I'm doing this pose. I'm going to do this pose so I can show people I'm a I'm a I'm a yoga person, and then maybe become a yoga teacher. Um, and it's all for this performative aspect of it, which is really interesting. But then what came to mind when we were talking is that meditation. There is no outward. Um, expression of meditation, uh, except for the meditation posture or meditation seat, which actually asana, the yoga, is actually that the original form was. So that. you got to
0: use the timer on your phone. So when you're deep in your, <laughs> you just take a, a screenshot it, yeah. of it. Yeah,
1: yeah. but uh, but there is, and that's and that's an interesting thing. In and it's like so for, it just never occurred to me. I don't really have a point there. For but yeah.
0: <laughs> well, I what I appreciated from your story was that we think about these cultural phenomenon like yoga, and we think, oh, this is like right from india it's always been there you know we basically hijacked it or brought it to america and you know from what you just said it's syncretic it's basically a blending of historical practices calisthenics you know stuff from america you know Mm -hmm. and this is the this is you know we have this thing about cultural appropriation today you're taking from my culture well you know i i don't I'm sure that there are some manifestations of that that are particularly problematic, but I don't have a kind of negative view. I feel like all culture is a mix and blending. And, um, you know, you just brought up a good example of something that seems very Indian, Mm -hmm. but it turns out it's not just Indian. It's a kind of, you know, it's a it's a human thing Mm -hmm. uh, that comes from a lot of different cultures. And, you know,
1: and to take it back to Algus Huxley, uh, he wrote a book called Perennial Wisdom, which is all about the wisdom that shows up no matter what and all of these little practices and like asana, yoga asana and stuff like that, they were lost in India too. Like there was a period where, where in 400 B.C. Uh, you had these practices were being shared and being created and being developed and stuff like that. And then it disappeared for about a period of, of a thousand years uh, and then started to regrow with a bit of an innovation in, in Kashmir as well. And that Buddhism, uh, Buddhism then was evolved as well. Um, and then these asanas started to show up. Uh, but the backdrop to that, the backdrop to the practices always remains the same and is always there. Like every, the, the, and that's what Al Jassau Huxley talked about in his book, Perennial Wisdom. Um, and it goes back to the doors of perception too. It's like our, 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 our doors of perception, like the way that we see the world is changed by culture, obviously. But the, the fundamental like backdrop to who is observing, that is always the same. And that's awareness, I would say.
0: Well, that's why it's so important to be living in a kind of a good place because how we see the world is up to us. And we bring to our view of the world and our perception of the world our background. Mm. So if you see the world as a scary place, you will see a lot of scary things. Mm. If you see the world as a giving and, and happy place, you will bring that to the equation. And that, you know, that's important in the kind of an empathy practice to see, you know, as we see on Twitter and we see in the news. A lot of people do not have the same perception of what's happening as we might. Yep. And um You know, when I see people bringing a lot of negativity, I often think that that's kind of what they're bringing to the world, you Mm -hmm. know, and I feel for them. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is back to if we want to be happier, uh, we may want to spend the time meditating and try to bring more uh, goodness to the world and more empathy and understanding and kindness uh, because it's going to come back to us because we will see the world that way. Mm -hmm. And it's a refinement, essentially, of attention,
1: basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been really cool. Thank you very much for coming on it's the show. My pleasure. And how can people find out more about you? Well, they can go to my website. Yeah. Okay.
0: Uh, they can go to my Instagram, uh, Chris underscore Michael, M-I-C-H-E-L, or Twitter, Chris Michael. Cool. Um, and um, I'm just grateful to be here. Thanks Thank for you. the nice comments. Thank you. Okay. Ciao.
1: Hope you enjoyed this episode with Christopher Michael. I am releasing episodes every day, Monday through Friday, uh, at least for the month of January. I've got a lot in the backlog, and so I'm just p- pushing them out there. Hope you're enjoying them. I'm being pretty prolific, uh, so I hope, you, I hope you are getting value from that. And uh, probably for the month of February, I'm going to be going on retreats, uh, meditation retreats. So I'll be um, publishing episodes Monday and Friday, probably going back to a Monday and Friday release schedule. I just want to let you guys know that's my release schedule and I uh, would love it if you could find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, any of the other podcasting platforms. And if you haven't already, please go ahead and subscribe. And if you're very really feeling generous, go ahead and give us a review as well. I'd love to hear what you think. Also, I'm on Twitter at Stuart Iii. My DMs are open. You can send me a message anytime. To uh, I'd love to hear what you think about the show and uh, what you've gotten from it. And hope you guys have a great day. Enjoy your day.